All right, I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 13 through 21. Back in 2014, there was an NFL linebacker who played for the Baltimore Ravens. His name was Ray Rice, and he was caught on camera. Maybe some of you remember this incident. He was caught on hotel surveillance camera punching and knocking out his then fiance Janae Palmer. The two had gotten into an altercation at a casino in New Jersey. They had been drinking. Rice got up and walked away from the table to get on the elevator. Palmer followed after him. They were yelling and swearing at each other. They got on the elevator. She spit in his face, and he punched her and knocked her out. And when the elevator opened, he's seen on camera dragging her unconscious body out of the elevator. And the footage of that shocked the public, obviously. And Ray Rice came out and made a public apology. And he said these words, I made the biggest mistake of my life. I want to own it. My actions that night were totally, totally inexcusable. I know that's not who I am as a man. That's not who I am as a man. Four years later, he, he can't seem to escape this incident, so he gets interviewed about it again and again, even though he's not playing in the NFL anymore. He was asked about that incident again, and Rice said this, I hate that person. I hate him. That's not who I am. I hate that person that all of you saw on camera. And perhaps you've never physically assaulted anyone, or maybe you have, but I'm sure you have done things and said things that you would look back now and say, I hate. I hate that version of me. I can't believe that came out of my mouth. I can't believe I did that. Have you ever shocked yourself and done things that you yourself don't understand? Have you ever felt frustrated with yourself, disappointed in yourself, bewildered by yourself? You're just left looking in the mirror saying, who am I? Where did that come from? Have you ever made vows or promises to yourself or maybe to somebody else? I'll never do that again. I'll change. I will never fill in the blank. I will never lose my temper at my kids again. I will never get wasted again. I'll never turn to porn again. I will never get myself back into debt again. Why do you do the things that you don't want to do? Why do you fail to do what you intend to do? Probably the most important question is, is there any hope for people like that? And as we well, no, there's only one place to turn, which is God's word. And so I want to invite you, if you're physically able, to stand with me out of our reverence and awe and humility before God and his inerrant word. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans seven thirteen through 21. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death 
in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to you through Christ Jesus. We're thankful to you for your word. This is one of those texts that just confirms to us that this this book is unlike any book. It gets us, it reads us, and our deepest agony. Oh God, we're looking to you now to address us and to speak to us that we might know you and trust you and walk in your ways. Be glorified in us we pray, and produce fruit in us through your word and by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Romans chapter 7 describes a first-hand, first-person account of a conflicted man. Listen to the sheer exasperation in verse 15. Did you hear that? For I do not understand my own actions, or we might say, I don't recognize myself. I don't recognize the own act, my own actions that are coming from my own body. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So Ray Rice was not the first man to say, that's not the man I am. I hate that man who did that thing. This is a divided man. Over half a dozen times, he says essentially the same thing. Some version of verse 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. He says it so many times. It's one of those passages we kind of joke about. You you get all twisted around. I do what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do. And he just keeps saying that. And it describes a divided experience. There's a disconnect between this man's will and his conduct. He, He talks about his mind and his will, what he purposes to do. He talks about his inner being. He talks about that dimension of himself some 10 times. And then on the other hand, he's talking about his body and his actions and what he produces and what he does 17 times. So there's this divide between what he purposes and what he actually does. The the problem is 
his intentions don't translate into the follow-through, into the action. And I just guess that you probably relate to that, that, that you know that experience. I, I really mean to do better, to be better, to try harder, and it just doesn't happen. This conflict escalates to warfare in verses 22 through 23. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being internally, but I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war. It's all-out war against the law of my mind. And, and it's a defeating war. This other law makes me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Just like Humpty Dumpty, this man is irreparably divided. Nothing can put him back together. And his, his divided condition is not an abstract problem. He's not just philosophizing about this sitting back. No, it, it, it culminates in this agonizing cry of distress in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If you can relate, if you've said and done things that shock yourself, you didn't know you were capable of, then you know that feeling of misery, distress, wretchedness. So who is this wretched man? That's one question often asked about this text. Maybe you're familiar with that. There's a long-standing debate about the identity of the wretched man in Romans 7. And the debate is mainly about whether this man is a converted, regenerated believing, justified Christian, or is this an unregenerated, unconverted, unbeliever? Who is this wretched man? Is he regenerate or unregenerate? The good news is the main point of this passage does not hinge on the answer to that question. It's, it's not the question that the text is asking or answering. It's just not mainly about that. The point of this passage is that the law cannot free those who are in the flesh and captive to sin. That, that's the main point of this passage, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But about this debate, I think it's worth at least acknowledging it and, and briefly mentioning because it's so well known, and you might be curious about this. There are strong arguments on either side of that, really strong arguments, which is why really significant people are on either side of that. And neither side can really say to the other dismissively, it's just so obvious. Duh, just take my side. It's not necessarily that obvious. It's the kind of thing that if you read it one way, you kind of go, oh, I see why some people think that. It sounds like the experience of a Christian. And from the other side, you think, sounds like the experience of an unregenerate person. Let me just sum up briefly a couple of reasons on either side. The regenerate view, those who see this as a description of a believer, those who take that side would point out this man, he delights in God's law, verse 22. He wants to obey God. And they would say, unbelievers don't have that kind of delight in the law of God, do they? They would highlight the, the reality that the New Testament teaches that there is an already and not yet struggle of the Christian life, that, that believers, Christians, those who are really justified, really forgiven of all their sins, can actually be freed from sin's penalty, and yet they're not yet free from sin's influence. Sin still remains, and so there is a battle with remaining indwelling sin for genuine Christians. And I think another reason that is often brought up, it's not so much exegetical as it is just 
the experience. As a Christian, you can read this and go, I can relate to that. I, I can relate to the agony and that cry of distress and the fact that I still sin and I do things that I just, I hate. So this language seems to give fitting expression to that experience. On the other side, those who see this as a description of unbelievers would point out, this wretched man is unambiguously connected to the flesh. Verses 14, 18, 25. And Paul uses that description, those who are in the flesh, to describe life without the Spirit of God. Life in your own strength. In fact, it's noteworthy that there is zero mention of the Spirit of God in this entire passage. Anywhere in the struggle from verses 7 through 25. And then you get to Romans 8, and Paul mentions the Spirit of God 19 times in Romans chapter 8, describing the life of the believer. He says things like Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. The wretched man says about himself in verse 14, I am sold under sin. And he says in verse 23, I'm captive to the law of sin. And verse 25, I'm serving the law of sin. And Paul just spent all of chapter six saying to Christians, you're not a captive to sin. You're not enslaved to sin anymore. You're united to Christ. And so those who take this view would say the condition described here is not mainly about the struggle of a Christian with remaining sin, but it's a description of the helpless state of defeat and inability and despair of somebody who is living in the flesh without the help of God's spirit. It's not the normal Christian life. Even if this is a Christian, it's not a Christian living in the power of the spirit and enjoying the victory of Jesus over sin. It's somebody walking in the flesh. And in case you're curious, even though the rest of the sermon doesn't depend on this. Personally, I find that view, the unregenerate view, more convincing for those reasons. I think it fits the broader context of Romans 6 all the way through Romans 8 and the argument that Paul is developing. And I say that without denying that Paul does teach that Christians really do struggle with sin. I think he teaches that more clearly and specifically in Galatians chapter 5 and in all of his letters where he's writing to Christians who are sinning. And he's addressing that. And he says things like, don't walk in the passions of the flesh like the Gentiles do, but put on the new self. He says that to Christians. So yes, absolutely. Christians still struggle with remaining in indwelling sin. And I think Christians have a lot to relate to in this text if it's describing somebody trying to obey God in the power of their own flesh. One of the biggest objections to reading this passage as a description of an unregenerate person is the fact that this man says things like, I delight in God's law in my inner being, verse 22. Or verse 25, I serve the law of God with my mind. That sounds like a Christian, doesn't it? I think Paul is describing here his own experience as a devout, pious, zealous Jew living under the law in the flesh. That is, by his own strength, through his own effort, trying to keep the law without the spirit of God and therefore unable to obey God's law. Just think about how Paul described himself to his fellow Jews. He went to Jerusalem and they seized him. They grabbed him in the temple. So he's in Jerusalem, the capital, in the temple, the holiest place. And these Jews 
grab him and accuse him of teaching everyone against God's law. And when he gets up to make his defense, listen to his words. He, he does not doubt their zeal or their sincerity for God's law. He actually appeals to it. Acts 22 verse 3, he says to his fellow Jews, I am a Jew brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law. So he can relate to them. The strict manner of the law of our fathers being zealous for God as all of you are this day. And in a few places in Romans, Paul acknowledges the zeal of pious Jews living under God's law. Romans 2, he talks of Jews who rely on God's law, boast in God, know God's will, approve what is excellent, are instructed from the law, and yet they keep sinning and breaking God's law. I think those are the people he has in mind here. Romans 10, 2, he says about his fellow Jews, I bear them witness that they do have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They are zealous. And Paul's aim right here at this point in Romans is to prove that even though God's law is good, it lays out what's right, it absolutely cannot save humans from sin and death. And just think about how that argument is strengthened by his firsthand account that he's describing here. This conflicted experience of zealous Jews who try and try and try to keep God's law in their own strength, but they, they find that they fail. That means Paul's not talking about like the psychopaths in society. He's not talking about murderers and rapists. He's talking about devout religious people. Good people, the kind of people that you look at me and you think, I mean, how, how could those people end up in hell? He, he's not even just talking about religious people in general. He's talking about God's covenant people with God's revealed law. I mean, if anybody had a chance, wouldn't it be these people? So if those people, the most pious ones, if they find themselves in this condition, then how hopeless, how desperate, is the human condition. And that's the main point of Romans 7, 13 through 25, to, to prove that your best intentions, your best efforts are woefully inadequate. You can resolve with all the resolution you can muster up within yourself that you're just not gonna ever do that again. Good luck with that. And the law can't help you either. So you're in trouble. And if that sounds depressing, There's good news coming. I think where this is heading is to help us see the more you despair of your own ability to fulfill the law, the more you despair of that condition, the more desperate you are for Jesus and the more you delight in him. The more you despair of your own condition, the more desperate you are for Jesus and the more you delight in him. And that holds true in this text, whether this is describing a believer or an unbeliever. Either way, this is someone trying and failing to produce obedience because they're relying on the power of the flesh instead of the power of the spirit. And all of those attempts are always going to fail because the law is insufficient and your flesh is inadequate and sin indwells you. That's what comes out in this text. The law is insufficient. In verse seven, Paul asks, what then shall we say that the law is sin And we saw last week, he responds to that with this emphatic denial, by no means. And then he repeats the the question, essentially, in verse 13, did that which is good, the law, then bring death to me? Same answer, 
by no means. So the goodness of God's law is still his focus, still the theme in this text. And and Paul's point is twofold, affirming on the one hand, God's law is good while he's insisting it can't save you. It can't stop you from sinning. And you know that, don't you? Because you've tried. Here he adds in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. Spiritual, and Paul uses that, he means of the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of God. That means we know that the law comes from God himself. It comes from the Spirit of God. It expresses the holy and righteous ways of God. This law, we're not just talking about like a self-help book at Barnes and Noble. This is not human philosophy trying to help you improve your life. This is not a TED talk. This comes from God and it's good and it can't keep you from sinning. You need something else. And the fact that the law is spiritual also points to the fact that the law of God calls for obedience from the heart, which is the real problem for us, right? Remember Romans 2? 28 through 29, the way back when we were in Romans 2, Paul said there, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. It's spiritual. The spirit of God has to do something in you. It's not by the letter. It's not just by an outward command or an outward act. The spirit of God does something. True fulfillment of the spiritual law requires an inward work of the spirit. So the Old Testament law, it comes from the spirit, but it did not come with this internal working of the spirit. It defines righteousness. It demands righteousness, but it does not produce righteousness. So to someone... In, in the agony, the turmoil of this Roman 7 wretchedness, doing what you don't want to do, not doing what you do want to do. Good rules are not good news. If, if that's you agonizing over that, why do I keep doing these things? Good rules are not good news to you. We, we've said this before. If somebody just comes along and says, you know, slaps you on the side of the head and just says, well, you idiot, don't do that. You would say, I know. That's my problem. I don't want to do that. I already know it's wrong. That's why I feel such agony. Just repeating, don't, 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 doesn't give help to anyone. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't lose your temper. Don't get drunk. I I know. I just keep falling back into it. When you sin, how often is the problem that you didn't know it was wrong? That's the very problem. Paul concludes in verse 16. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, and his whole point is, I do. And if I do, then I agree with the law that it's good. I I know that. I know that. I agree with it. The problem is, knowing the rules is not enough to produce change, and the fault is not with the law. The problem is located in the lawbreaker. Verse 14, we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. It's not the fault, I think Jordan used an analogy like this a couple weeks ago, it's not the fault of the scale that it can't make you lose weight. It's doing its job. It's not the fault of the tape measure that it can't cut the two by four. It's just doing its job. It's not there to cut it for you. It's there to measure it, tell you how long it is, if it's too short. The problem is located in us. The problem is that the flesh is inadequate. Look at verse 18. 
I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire, literally the, the, the wanting, I have the wanting to, I have the, the will to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. When Paul talks about the flesh, he's talking about fallen human nature in Adam, old humanity. The flesh has no ability to fulfill the spiritual requirements of God's law. The flesh is bankrupt. The flesh is inadequate. The person living in the flesh and under the law is attempting to fulfill the law's righteous demands through self-reliance, through willpower, instead of relying on God. And the inability here is not a physical inability. It's not like God, you know, hangs a prize up in the rafters here and says, you can have it if you can get it. And you're just thinking physically, I mean, what human being can, nobody can jump that high. It's not like God set the bar too high in terms of a physical ability. The the fact is God made the human body to know him and love him and to love others. So it's not a physical deficiency. The, The problem is that in the flesh, your mind and your will, what Paul calls the inner being, is unable to produce the good that God's law requires. Your best intentions, your, your sheer willpower, your New Year's resolutions, they're, they're not enough. The, the man in Romans 7 intends to do better. He resolves to be better. <laughs> Anybody else see people talk like that these days? They just say things like, be better. <laughs> Be a better human. (laughs) If it was that easy. Seven times he speaks of wanting to do good, that is to fulfill the law, not wanting to do evil, that is break the law, and yet he, he keeps failing. And when Paul talks about knowing and wanting what's right, his point is not, he's not saying, well, deep down, I know I'm a good person. He's, does this sound like somebody who's comforting himself, saying, Deep down, I'm a good person, so everything's fine. No, he's in agony and distress precisely because he knows deep down he's not. His whole point is the inadequacy of his own heart. It doesn't matter what resolutions he makes. He can't bring himself to carry it out. So he's not claiming some goodness inside of him. He's claiming some deficiency. I can't follow through. And this inner conflict points to the the more serious problem, the real problem, the fact that Sin is inside of you. It's inside of you. Verses 17 and 20 both come to the same conclusion. Look at verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. The problem's not outside you. It's not around you. It's not some powerful enemy outside of you. It's this enemy inside. The presence of this evil force inside the one sinning. He comes to this conclusion that that's that's the only way to explain what's happening. Sin is in me. Verse 21, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. How close? Inside me. A traitor on the inside. It's not an outside force is resident inside you, which just means our, our condition in the flesh, in sin, is, is worse than we, we fear. And again, by placing the blame on sin, Paul is not trying to get the responsibility off of himself and say, therefore, I'm fine. Now, he, he's not denying personal responsibility. On the one hand, one hand, he can say, 
So if I keep doing what I don't want to do, then it's, it's not I who does it, but it's sin dwelling in me. And on the other hand, he can say about himself, nothing good dwells in me. I do the evil I don't want to do. That's me doing that. I keep doing that. The point is, it's, it's on the inside. It's, it's not some bad influence outside of you. It's not your circumstances, your surroundings, not some temptation, some distraction out there. It's inside. And by locating the problem inside, Paul takes full responsibility. He comes to this conclusion in verses 21 through 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's not appealing to his good intentions as proof of any goodness in himself. He's showing his own lack of goodness. Goodness is exactly what he doesn't have. All he has inside is sin down to the core. And relying on his own strength, Paul just finds, I'm a slave. I'm a slave to sin. I lost the war. I can't get myself out of it. And and I'm in trouble. I even know the law. I have the law from God. And here I am. Sin's tyranny is too strong for the flesh. And the law wasn't given to break that. And so all of this culminates in the cry in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If you relate to that experience, you find your strength and your willpower isn't enough to overcome sin. Knowing the rules is not enough to break the power of sin. Then you come to the conclusion, if any deliverance is to be found, it has to come from outside of me. It has to come from outside of me. And even though Paul closes this chapter, verse 25, leaving some tension sitting there until he gets into Romans 8, he can't help but break out with this cry of triumph in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The law is insufficient. The flesh is inadequate. Sin is inside of me, but God is is incarnate. He took on flesh. He came into this world. He lived under the law, and he did something about our condition. This is where we're going in Romans 8, and it's glorious. Sneak peek. Look at Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What did he do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He took on flesh. He became what we are, yet without our sin. He took on a human body. He took on a human mind. He had human emotions. He had a human will. He took on full humanity in order that God might condemn sin in human flesh. Who has to pay for sin? Human flesh, because human flesh carries out sin. And so the Son of God took on flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, 
our Lord. The more you despair of your own inability, the more you will delight in Jesus and all that he did for you. That becomes sweeter and sweeter news the more aware you are of your own inability to escape the power of your own sin inside of you. That's the effect this text should have on you. You should come away from Romans 7, 13 through 25 more fully convinced than ever. I cannot please God through relying on myself. So all I resolve to do is to not rely on myself, but to rely on Jesus who took on flesh to ransom me. And you should be like Paul, grateful. Thanks be to God. There is hope for wretched people like us. There is hope. The flesh is weak, but Christ is strong. Your flesh is inadequate, but Christ is more than enough. Sin enslaves you. Christ sets you free. He has done it all. Rules and resolutions will never produce lasting change. It's, it's the firsthand account here is Paul leaving a review for you to know. Don't try. It's miserable. It's, it's futile. But God has made a way for you to be free from the old self, free from bondage to sin and death and the law, to be empowered with the Spirit of God, to walk in God's ways, to develop new habits and experience real victory and lasting change. God means for you to experience that by his grace. And that's where we're going in Romans 8, what many have called the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. You don't want to miss that. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you have provided the fullness of God in human form to bear all our blame so that we might be forgiven and freed and filled with your spirit to walk in newness of life. Let that be so for the people of Emmaus Road Church, that we would treasure this gospel, this Savior, Christ our Lord, who died for us, and that we would trust you, and that we would give up all hope of improving our own lives, by our own efforts. Oh God, forgive us. We do often turn back to walking in the flesh, but that, that's just completely illogical for those who are united to Christ now and filled with the Spirit. So may the life of the Spirit in us produce fruit that overflows and abounds to your glory and for the good of others and for our joy. Oh God, Produce this in us by your grace, through Jesus, your spirit working in us, your word dwelling richly in us, we pray. Amen.